Good morning, everybody. Are you awake? My wife and I, we set our clocks ahead like at 5 o'clock, and we made a commitment we're, we were not going to get cheated out of an extra hour of sleep. So uh, I feel pretty rested, uh, got up on time. Then it took me like 20 minutes to figure out how to change the clock in my car, so I ended up late anyway. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad you're here, and uh, hopefully you can stay awake with me as we work through First uh, Peter chapter 2. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles there, New Testament, First Peter chapter 2. And if you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Aliens. Uh, It's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, who he addresses as aliens in the world. Because of their faith in Jesus, their their, their reverence for God, their desire to obey God, Peter explains they were going to be oftentimes misunderstood by the culture around them, viewed as, as strange and peculiar people who don't always seem to fit in. And today we begin chapter 2 of the letter, and as we do, we need to keep in mind that, um, well, Peter was a fisherman by trade, right? I mean, he he wasn't highly educated, he uh, he didn't have advanced degrees in literature or creative writing, he wasn't a celebrated poet, author, or journalist, and so his style of writing is rather pedestrian, really, it's it's quite simple. Chapter 1 is essentially a a, a run-on sentence. It's an ongoing stream of thought, one of reason and result, cause and effect, and Peter uses terms like therefore, since, and now to grammatically link all of his thoughts together. And as we saw at the end of chapter 1, Peter says, you know, as Christians, we have experienced the love and grace of God through faith in Jesus, and we are forgiven, we're purified of our sin, and so we love each other sincerely and deeply from the heart. Uh, It's just what we do, and the reason we're able to do that is because in Christ, we've been spiritually born again. You know, we are new creations. Loving is part of our DNA. And so while translators like to insert a chapter break here, the original document has no chapter breaks. Uh, and so verse 1 is, is, is just a continuation of thought uh, where Peter is building on this idea of love and new birth by now pressing the concept of spiritual growth. Look what he says. Notice in verse 1, chapter 2, he says, Therefore, another connecting word, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, Before we go on, let's pray. Our Father, we submit ourselves uh, to you this morning. We humble ourselves before you and before your word. And we pray, God, that your spirit would come and move among us and have freedom to teach us, to change us. May we be open to what you want us to know today. Um, would you remove the barriers that would keep us from hearing and responding? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, whenever I read uh, Peter's comments here about craving uh, spiritual milk, it always sounds like an advertisement to me. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but the American Dairy Association just last month launched a brand new ad campaign to again stress the nutritional value of milk, stressing the, the protein value, really. And the new slogan, if you haven't known, heard, it, heard it yet, the new slogan is milk life. <laughs> milk, 
And if you've seen the commercials, they have people doing all kinds of things, and, and milk is just like squirting out of their backs, and it's kind of disgusting, really. Um, but it's an interesting uh, attempt at you know pressing this idea of milk's nutritional value. So you, you guys laugh. I, you, I know you realize I haven't gotten any calls from the dairy industry to help with the campaign because, well, that look isn't going to sell a lot of product. But um, uh, I hope I hope that in a graphic you know, maybe even a disturbing way, uh, it'll help you remember what Peter is saying to us in the church and how we are to crave pure spiritual milk. In other words, he's saying now that we have been spiritually reborn, we need to grow up. We need to mature. And the way he gets his message across in verses 1 through 3 is by using a deductive approach, which means Peter starts with his conclusion and then he then he explains his reasoning. And so what I want to do is, for the sake of clarity, I want to flip the verses around, and I want to start with verse 3 and his reasons, and then work backwards to the conclusion of verse 1, okay? I think you'll understand why once we get there. But stick with me on this. In verse 3, Peter talks about tasting. And he says, Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And uh, this idea of tasting has to do with one's initial encounter with something new. Uh, when I was a little kid, <clears throat> I was an incredibly picky eater. I drove my mother nuts. I mean, I was so annoying about it. I had three rules about food. Uh, one, don't eat anything green. Two, don't eat, any, do, don't eat anything new. And three, don't let anything mix on your plate. Uh, I, I had food issues, and the, the mixing of food on my plate freaked me out. I could, they, everything had to be separated. So casseroles were absolutely unacceptable. And I, I remember uh, one time going out to eat with my parents, and I was, I was pretty little. I still remember it, though. And um, apparently the, the special was lasagna, and, and my parents wanted me to try this lasagna. I'm like, no way, I'm not eating that. And my mom was like, well, why not? I said, I don't like it. She said, you never, you've never tasted it. I said, that's right, and I'm not going to. And she goes, well, that's just silly. You like cheese, right? You like noodles, right? You like hamburger. I'm like, yeah, but not all mixed together. And... Uh, to avoid a scene, they let me order a hamburger, which I didn't eat because it was flame-broiled, and I never had it that way, and it violated rule number two. <laughs> Don't eat anything new. But um, at some at some point along the way, and I don't know, remember where, when it was, apparently in a moment of wild abandon, I tried lasagna, and I loved it, and it's one of my all-time favorite foods. And, and, and here's the deal. If I never had that initial taste... I would never know just how good it is. And Peter is saying the same is true in our spiritual lives, that once we taste the goodness of God in Jesus, we want more. In fact, it's interesting, the Greek term Peter uses for good here can also be translated, the Lord is gentle, or the Lord is easy. He's good and easy. It's the term Jesus used when he said, to a culture that was beaten down by religion. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. For my yoke is good and easy, and uh, my burden is light. Understand, Peter's writing the church, and he's saying that, you know, once a person experiences the love and grace of God through faith in Jesus and tastes of the Lord's goodness, we're left with a desire uh, for more of him, for more of his truth. And that's what Peter talks about in verse 2. See, it's the tasting of what is good that leads to a craving for more. Peter writes, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. 
Now, most of us are aware of this, that uh, around the world, in every culture, infants are fed milk. Some are born uh, with their mouths open, ready to eat. Others take a little while to catch on, but they eventually figure it out. We all do. We all figure out how to consume calories. And milk is an amazing food. Uh, Some call it the most nearly perfect food because it's loaded with nutrients, carbohydrates, fats, minerals, vitamins, proteins, everything necessary for health and growth. And, uh, and all of milk, whether human or animal, contains the same basic nutrients just in differing uh, amounts and percentages. And that's why for newborns, mother's milk is best. It's pure. It's uncontaminated. It's sufficient for a baby's nourishment. Now, obviously, when Peter mentions milk here, he's not talking about mother's milk or the stuff we get from a cow and pour on our cereal. When Peter references pure spiritual milk, he's talking about the truth of God, the word of God. How do we know that? We know it by the context, right? I mean, remember, Peter says, therefore, which means he is now connecting what he's saying with what he's already said about you know, how our sins are forgiven, how we're made pure, how in Christ we're born anew by obeying the truth, i.e. accepting the good news of Jesus, how we recognize that God's truth, his word, stands forever, it endures forever, it is forever true and good and right. In addition, the, per- P- the term that Peter uses here, we translate spiritual, while being a rare New Testament term was a common Greek term, referring to that which is divinely rational. And his term for pure literally means without deceit. And so here's another way we could translate the verse. Like newborn babies crave the rational and unadulterated word of God so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. In other words, he is saying once a person through faith in Christ is spiritually reborn, they will and should continue to desire the truth and spiritual nourishment of God's word. And like, you know, like modern dairy products that, you know, today, there are a variety of ways in which uh, spiritual milk can be consumed. Um, you can read and study scripture on your own. Um, uh, you can be part of a life group. Uh, you can come on Sunday mornings and listen to sermons, or you can listen to them online, or you can attend classes, or you can, you can memorize Scripture on your own. You can spend quiet time every day reflecting on God's truth and praying and, and reflecting on what God says is right and good and healthy and true. Uh, you know, but whatever the case, whatever the case, we need to be sure we're getting spiritual nourishment and nourishment that's pure. I mean, Peter's implication is that there's some contaminated spiritual food out there on the market, and there is. I see it a lot, where God's truth is sometimes mixed and twisted with heresy and politics and and greed and even absurdity. Think about it, you know, our culture today has become uh, pretty health conscious and, uh, and informed, and so we want, you know, we, want, we want our food to be organic, and we want our, our restaurants to be absolutely sanitary, and we expect food servers to wash their hands, and we read ingredients, and we, we check expiration dates. Uh, you don't need to get a degree in microbiology to be careful about the purity of what you consume. You just need common sense and uh, constant caution. And the same goes for spiritual food. Use common sense about what you read, who you listen to, who you believe. Make sure that you get the purest possible biblical teaching and spiritual nourishment. And if you have doubts about what you hear, check, check it yourself. I mean, God has given his word to you to read, to study, 
to discuss, to memorize, to discern. It will nourish you. It'll cause you to mature in your faith. I mean, listen, without spiritual nourishment, none of us will ever grow up in our faith. It won't happen. And Peter's point is that, you know, we all start out as infants, the spiritual new, new birth sets us up. We're infants when we start out. You know, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do, where you're from. It doesn't matter your IQ, how big your bank account is, what your talents are, your accomplishments. It doesn't matter. By experiencing new birth, we all start out our spiritual life in Christ as immature babies. Unfortunately, many in the church remain as such. What, what does that mean then? What does that look like? Well, think of the characteristics of babies of little kids. First, they're somewhat unstable, yeah? I mean, they, they can be whining and crying and upset in one second, but if you say, well, let's get some, let's get some ice cream, <laughs> okay, you know, they shake it off. The tears are gone, everything's fine. And I'm not trying to be cruel, I'm just being realistic. Due to a lack of life experience, little kids are shallow. They're, they're shallow. And so they... Based on circumstance, they jump back and forth between contentment, agitation, joy, anger, laughing, crying, happiness, sadness. And for some in the church, it's the same thing. It's about circumstance. You know, as long as everything's going well, I've got my ice cream, you know. God is good. He's good. He loves me. But if something goes wrong, why has God done this to me? How could he let it happen? How cruel he is. Babies are unstable. Babies are uh, self-centered. From their perspective, the universe revolves around them. Around them getting what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And if you don't drop everything you're doing to meet their needs, there's going to be a problem. If they don't get the attention, if they don't feel like you're listening to them, if they don't get their way, they throw tantrums. They get all dramatic. They cause a scene. And I would suggest that churches in America are filled with this kind of self-centered immaturity. Babies are short, they have short attention spans. They lack, they lack discipline and the ability to persevere through adversity. And babies are gullible. They're very gullible. I mean, when my kids were little, I used to tease them about everything. I mean, everything. They'd ask a question. I'd get them the craziest answer, and they would just look at me. You know, they'd ask like, uh, Dad, where, where does the sun go at night? Well, it sets in the west over there. Yeah, but where does it go? It goes to Arizona. That's why it's so hot there. You know, uh, well, how does it get back to, over on the other side? You know, well, it takes a bus east or grabs a train or car or something. That's how. And they would look at their mother and say, really? And she'd go, no, don't listen to your father. I tease them about all kinds of stuff. You see, that's why we need to grow. Because spiritual babies are immature. They're unstable. They're self-centered, undisciplined, and easily fooled. And we all start out that way. But we're not meant to stay that way. We're meant to mature. We're meant to develop to develop intellectually in our knowledge of, and understanding of God, in our morality, in our obedience and behavior, emotionally dealing with life situations, socially in our relationships together, ministerially, you know, in how we humbly serve others and impact our world. In human physiology, we grow for about what, 18, 19, 20 years maybe? 
uh, and then we start shrinking. Uh, although we might get wider, we stop getting taller. Uh, but spiritual growth is different. It takes a lifetime to grow. Some people stay underdeveloped for years. Others grow quickly. The rate of growth may vary from person to person, but it is a process that never ends. We are to keep maturing, keep developing, growing up in our salvation by craving and consuming the word of God. And I'm just wondering how you guys are doing with that. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a a well-known Baptist pastor in London, England, And one time he was concerned for the maturity of his people, and uh, he once said to his congregation of 6,000 or more, he said, my fear is that, he said, my fear is that many of you have enough dust on your Bibles that I could write damnation on it with my finger. (laughs) I'm glad Spurgeon said that, and I just get to quote him and not get in trouble. Um, But... Seriously, I mean, how many of us say we're followers of Jesus and we're committed to God, we love him, we want to know him, we want to obey him, we want to serve him, and yet ignore his word? I mean, trust me on this. Uh, It's a mistake to think that as Christians, once we have found God, we no longer need to seek him, ergo we quit. We've been reborn, there's no need to grow. That's nonsense. Peter is saying, if we've really tasted the goodness of God, we are going to want more of him. We are going to crave more, and that craving will lead us to his word, which will lead to growth, which is a necessary and ongoing process. So here's the question. Have you been growing? In the last few months, in the last year, have you been growing as a Christian? Do you exhibit the characteristics of a baby, unstable, self-centered, undisciplined, easily fooled. Suppose each of us asked five people that we know well to give us a spiritual growth score. Uh, How do you think you'd do? I mean, I know people that I would rate very high, others not so much. What about you? I think that's a pretty serious question. And it's one only that you and God, only you and God can answer. So, are you following the Apostle Peter's reasoning here? Uh, He's saying, look, tasting the Lord's goodness leads to craving more of Him and His truth. And that craving results in ridding ourselves of certain things, it results in growth. It results in verse one behavioral transformation. And I know that this verse reads, at least initially, like a command, but it's not a command. It's not, a, it's not an imperative. It's a statement of reality. Uh, a better translation might be, therefore, Peter says, having rid yourselves already of all kinds of malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of all kinds. In other words, these things are or should be gone. Or to put it in another way, Peter says, after tasting the Lord is good and being reborn and craving spiritual nourishment that comes from the enduring word of God, he says, you will be the kind of people I've already mentioned and described in chapter 1, verse 22, namely men and women who love one another sincerely and deeply from the heart. Because you've been changed from the inside out. And you're in process of getting rid of man of all that sin, that crud, those relational toxins that stunt growth, poison the body, and kills sincere, loving community. What are those toxins? Well, Peter says the first is the toxin of malice. 
And the Greek term he uses here is sort of a, it's a sort of a, gene- a generic name for anything and everything that's bad or evil. But in this particular context, this relational context, it specifically refers to ill will towards somebody. Ill will. It's a desire and a destructive force bent on intentionally harming someone or harming others. Malice comes from the same root that gives us our word malignant. It's a cancer in the body. We all know there are a lot of types of cancers out there. Uh, None of us want any of them. Spiritually speaking, the same is true. We don't want, shouldn't want this kind of metastasizing sin infiltrate our lives or our church. And so we should all do sort of a CAT scan of our souls to check for any such thing that pollutes us from the inside out. And those sins might include anything from arrogance and selfishness to hate and murder, from a bad attitude to evil actions. They're all included. Malice, uh, elsewhere in Scripture, the term for malice is connected with grumbling, complaining, bitterness, and jealousy. Is there anything like that in your life? Anything like that that's affecting you and others around you that should be confessed to God, forgiven, and then dumped, or as Peter puts it, gotten rid of. Then there's the toxin of deceit. Uh, Deceit is easy, right? You know what that is? Speaking falsehood, lying, saying anything which is less than the full and honest truth. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he writes to Christians in Rome, he says, you know, deceit is a vice that's rooted in, in, in our twisted human hearts. We have a bent toward it. In fact, um, here in verse 2, when Peter mentions the purity of God's word, he uses the same term, only he adds a prefix, which means without, without deceit. So in short, he's saying, while God's word is, is pure and honest and true, he says our words are many times the opposite, impure, dishonest, untrue, mixed with falsehood. Deceit is misleading others for selfish purposes. It's, it's representing yourself as better than you are. It's purposefully twisting the facts. It's tricking another person to believing or doing what you want them to do or what you want them to think. Deceit is a toxin of the soul, and it hurts the body. It kills relationships. It stunts growth. So does the toxin of hypocrisy. And we talked about this word last week, right? It comes from a first century Greek theatrical term that was used to describe actors and actresses on a stage and how they would come out holding these sticks with masks on them and they would put the masks up near their face and they would speak their lines out from under the mask. They were pretending to be someone or something they were not. And you know what? That's acceptable in, in, in the theater, but not in real life. It's not acceptable. Peter's already said, don't do that. Don't speak out from under the mask. Don't pretend. And yet many in the church are tempted to do just that, to play a part, to pretend we're better than others are, superior to others, to act in ways that we think will please or impress those around us. And I think we pretend mostly because we're afraid that if we're honest about ourselves, other people aren't going to like us or they're going to judge us or worse yet, they're not going to do what we want. And so we pretend. Then there's the toxin of envy. 
This may be one of the most common poisons of the soul. Envy is rooted in our comparison with others. We compare ourselves with others all the time. And uh, we want what they have. It's a, envy is a deep dissatisfaction with who we are, where we are, and what is ours. You know what I'm saying? Um, maybe the best way to describe it is to say that envy is when I'm happy about bad things that happen to other people. Or when I'm sad about the good things in another person's life. The famous writer and poet Dorothy Sayers put it this way. She said, envy begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Envy is when I feel rotten because you got a promotion and I didn't. Because you have lots of friends and I have very few. Because you have success and I don't. Because you carry influence, I have none. Don't you see? Don't you see? Envy is the very opposite of love. It's the very opposite of love. Because love wants the best. It wants the best in another person's life. Envy is rooting for the worst. In fact, envy often works itself out in community through the toxin of slander. What's slander? Slander is saying false and destructive things about other people when they're not around. You know, deceit, at least, is practiced to a person's face. Slander is done in their absence. It's cowardice, although it is a feel-good type of sin because it feels good to share some, some gossip that trashes somebody who you disagree with or dislike, some concerns about them that you need to share. There's a sick pleasure we get in making ourselves superior over them while they're not here. And we rationalize the sin by insisting what we're saying is accurate, and it's out of concern. But the issue isn't just about accuracy or inaccuracy. It is about the building up or the tearing down of another person. It's about the diminishing of their influence and ruining their reputation, throwing questions at their reputation. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God says to the Israelites, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Solomon, in his wisdom, writes in Proverbs, whoever spreads slander is a fool. In the New Testament, James says, humble yourselves before before the Lord and do not slander one another. And just for the record, just for the record, do you guys know where the word devil comes from? It's the Greek term diabolos. It means slanderer. Listen to me when I tell you, slander is evil. It is diabolical. It's hateful. It's not loving. It's divisive. It's not unifying. Stop it. I can't help but wonder how many of us and how much of our daily conversations would be significantly shortened if any and all criticism, slander, and bad-mouthing of people were edited out. Some of us might not have anything to say. A week and a half ago on February 25th, Forbes magazine published their ranking of the nine toughest leadership roles in America. Has anyone seen this article? Fascinating article. Uh, Nine toughest leadership roles in America. Number nine, a corporate CEO. Number five, pastor. 
Number one, stay-at-home parent. Fascinating, fascinating, uh, fascinating little article. I encourage you to look it up and read it. But since I made number five on the list, (laughs) since I made the list, let me just say this. As a pastor of 26 years, 19 as a senior pastor, one of the toughest things that I've learned about leadership is that as a leader, there are always going to be people who take pot shots at you. It's part of the territory. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're going to talk to others about how you're wrong, you're mistaken, why the decision you're making is a bad one and how things should be done differently and how you're failing at this, that, and the other thing. There are always going to be individuals, even in the church context, who want and on some level need to criticize and complain and condemn and tear down and divide and discredit. Peter says, there's an evil toxin flowing through them. They present themselves as spiritually grown up, but they're not. They're babies. They're immature, contentious slanderers, community killers. Now, you can be assured here that Peter's list is not exhaustive. I mean, toxins of the soul come in a lot of different flavors, but, but his goal here is not to address theological heresies, sexual sins, or social injustice. While those things are important, in this particular case, he simply wants to identify the immature sins that hinder our love for one another, stunt growth, and poison community. And understand, his emphasis is not so much on the specific sins of which we're guilty. His emphasis is on the fact that we should be in the process of ridding ourselves of them, not embracing them. See? Just as we start every day by looking in the mirror and washing our face before we head out, we should start every day peering into our souls and washing out the spiritual toxins. I think about it now and be honest. Because you can't fool God. You can fool me. You can't fool God. Do you have any of these toxins that need to go? Do you? Malice? Deceit? Hypocrisy? Envy? Slander? They're diabolical. I mean, is your spiritual immaturity causing division? destroying community. Peter says, if you've tasted the goodness of the Lord and you're craving and consuming the pure spiritual milk of his word, then you're going to be nourished and you're going to be growing and you're going to be maturing and you're going to be ridding yourselves. You're going to be transforming. You're going to be learning the difference between what's right and what's wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is unifying, what is divisive, what is loving, and what is absolutely toxic. And you'll rid yourselves You'll be ridding yourselves of those evil, nasty, that evil, nasty stuff that poisons the body and will pollute your soul. According to uh, Tertullian, who is an ancient Christian leader, writer, and apologist, uh, according to Tertullian, the second century church had a very interesting tradition. Uh, Apparently, whenever a person became a follower of Jesus, uh, and, and they got baptized as a way of expressing their faith in him. Following their, their baptism, as they stood in front of a great crowd of witnesses, they were handed a glass of milk to drink. And it served as a, a symbol of spiritual nourishment and, and the fact that they needed to grow. 
And it was a picture of the Christian craving and consuming the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Um, now, uh, I don't know when that tradition stopped, and I'm not suggesting we start doing it again, but I think it's a pretty cool way of getting the message across. You know what I mean? I mean, in, the, in these opening verses of chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is describing for us what's, what happens when we experience, truly experience, the love and grace of God through faith in Christ. We are reborn. We taste of the Lord's goodness. And that, that taste leads us to crave more of him and the truth of his word, which then in turn matures us, transforms us, and results in the discarding of sinful toxins that poison us and others. Understand, Peter says, we all, we all begin at the same place. We all begin our spiritual life in Christ as newborn babies, immature, unstable, self-centered, undisciplined, easily fooled. But we're not to remain that way. And so he says to the church, he says to you, he says to me, he says to all of us, grow up. It's time to grow up. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray this morning that um, you would give us the ability and the courage to be honest with ourselves and to be honest before you and to reflect on our own lives, our spiritual walk, our journey. Where are we on that? Are we just, are we spiritual infants? Which is not a bad thing. We all start there. Are we spiritual infants, just newbies? In our culture, nobody wants to be a newbie. No one wants to be uninitiated. It's hard for us to admit that, but the fact is that's where we begin our walk with you as infants, immature, and we just need to grow. Or are we just kidding ourselves? Are we thinking that we're spiritually mature when we're really not and we actually exhibit in our lives the characteristics of babies? I don't know. I can only speak for me. But we, I think, Lord, we need to be brutally honest about it. Because without that, we'll, we'll never grow. And so I pray that um, you would speak to us and you would help us, uh, through your word, understand what is true in our own lives. And, um, and the fact is, Lord, when we taste of your goodness, you are easy and good. When we experience your love and grace through faith in Jesus, um, we do want more of you. We crave more of you, of what's true about you, to know you in a deeper way. And, and, and through that process of learning through your word, we, we're transformed. And you rid us of those evil toxins that kill relationships and kill community and kill us. And so, Lord, um, speak to us as we end the service and, and move among us and... Um, our greatest desire is to love you and to worship you and to taste that you are indeed good and to want more of you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? So uh, when Peter says, uh, you have tasted that the Lord is good and easy, and then, you know, I'm guessing you took that from when Jesus said to a, a culture of people, religious people, who are just beaten down by rules and regulations and, and legalism, they were tired of trying to earn their way into God's good favor. Jesus said, those of you who are burdened by that and are weary of it, come to me. 
I'll give you rest because my yoke is good and easy. It's the idea of God's grace that makes it easy. Faith in Christ. It's not about your work. It's about what he has done for you. It's about the work of Jesus. Um, And our faith in him is where our sins are forgiven and we are changed from the inside out, transformed. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to accept Christ as Savior uh, and experience and taste that the Lord is indeed good and easy. And if you've never done that, man, I, I encourage you to make that decision. I talked to someone you know from Parkview about their faith journey and, and how they came to know Jesus. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's time for you to make a decision for many of you. Uh, it's, either, it's either Jesus' ways or it's religion. Those are the options. And I hope you choose Jesus. Um, following the service, some of our prayer team folks will be down front. Who are, they, they're, they're willing to talk with you, pray with you. Maybe there's some things in your life, some of these toxins that need to be, need to be get, gotten rid of. Uh, and you just need someone to pray with you about it. Or maybe you just have something else going on. Uh, or maybe something really great has happened in your life and you want to share with someone. They're here for you to talk with you and to pray with you, okay? Uh, in the meantime, have a great day, a great week. Uh, and uh, let me pray for you. And we'll come back next week and we'll, we'll keep on with, with Peter, all right? And now, Father, I pray that your people would leave this place with an overwhelming sense of your goodness. And the taste of that goodness, the experience of it, uh, causes us to want more of you, to know you more, to, to go to your word, to learn more about you. And that, that then, in turn, brings about transformation and change and maturity. And as we, as we mature and grow, and as we love one another sincerely and deeply, as, you've, as you've, you've told us we should, the world will look at us and know we're different. And they'll want to know what we have that they are lacking. And then we can tell them about you, our God. And so may now your hand of grace and peace and love and joy rest on your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.